day. He started with um, a bit of football with the guys here from Beacon, a bit of five-a-side football, which Owen surprised everyone by, by scoring five, six goals. And, uh, and then we, we gathered with guys from other churches and, and we did, um, I spoke about biblical manhood. And then Owen and I went to the game and, of course, I think many people were looking at him thinking he was a player, you know, an ex-player, so... We ended up in the Charlton dressing room at the end of the game talking to Ricardo Fuller and Owen was in his element, so it was, it was a good day. It was, it was a good day. Um, but it is, it's a great pr- privilege to be with you again. Um, I, in the summer, I was on a ministry trip, um, part of my role as a, a pastor of a church in, a pastoral team of a church in Calgary, is, is to do some international ministry. And so they've sent me again on this trip as I've been invited to Scotland and Sheffield and then linked up again with, with you guys. So it's good to be here just before you move to the new building, which is really exciting as well, and I think a, a great move. Um, and it, what's so very difficult when you're asked to go somewhere and preach is choosing a text to preach on, because the Bible's so big that people say, just pre- preach on what you want. Um, but this time it was good because you're doing a series on the gospel, and Owen said, would you take the gospel and, and suffering? And so I knew exactly where I was going to go um, this morning. I think I'm going to say some things here this morning which are very deep truths about God. And um, some of you may not have heard them before. It might shake some of you in, 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 the, in what is said. Um, so I just uh, pray that uh, God would, would open hearts and, and minds this morning to really hear the revelation of who he is. Um, in the midst of suffering. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll, we'll dive straight into the, into the text, and, and I'll explain how we're going to do it. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this gathering this morning of, of saints. I thank you for the love and faith of the people here at Beacon Church. I thank you for the fact that even when we are not faithful, you are faithful, and you are faithful to your own word above all else. And and your word says uh, that by your son dying for us on, on a cross, that we're secure in your grip and that you will never leave us nor forsake us and that you are a rock and a refuge. And so I pray this morning as we, as we look at your word, I pray that you would humble proud hearts. I pray that you would cause repentance and faith amongst people here. I pray that you would strengthen Um, bruised reeds and saints who are struggling here this morning, you would encourage. And I I pray that by your Holy Spirit attending your word, uh, that uh, you would apply it to each person as they need this morning. And uh, above all, I pray that Jesus Christ is is lifted up and and seen and and praised for the glory of his name. Amen. Okay, so suffering and, and the gospel. Suffering and the gospel. So I've put a bit of an outline up here for, for us to kind of follow along, mainly because it's quite dark in here and, and not many people can see the, the Bibles. But it would be good if you do have a Bible to, to turn to Job 1 at, at some stage here. But I want to outline how we're going to go through this. I've got five realities for us to see, five realities that drive this message today. There's one story for us to understand and four theological truths for us to believe. So five realities, five reasons for the message, one story to understand from the text, 
and four theological truths that flow from the text for us to believe, for us to grasp hold of and, and walk on in faith by. So, firstly, five realities that drive this message. Five realities to see. Number one, suffering is a biblical and pastoral reality. So I come here today with a biblical pastoral mandate in bringing you a message on the gospel and suffering. And and I take that from Acts 14, verses 21 and 22. You see, Paul, having just been stoned in Lystra, is coming back to visit a young church with Barnabas. And the text reads, They returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So don't miss that. Paul's way of discipling believers to strengthen and encourage them is to tell them, you must suffer. That's his discipling strategy. So one of the most important issues in the life of a Christian is the place of God's wisdom in their suffering and in the suffering that they see in the world around, which makes suffering a biblical and pastoral reality, number one. Number two, Suffering is a global reality. You know, we live in a world full of natural evil, diseases. Almost 50,000 people contracted HIV last week. Approximately 40,000 others died of AIDS in the same week. One in two people will be diagnosed with cancer in their lifetime. Look around this room, one in two. And over 500,000 people will die of cancer this year. That's diseases, disasters. Hundreds of thousands of people died instantly in recent earthquakes, in Haiti, in China in recent years, in a cyclone in Myanmar, in a tsunami in Southeast Asia. Over 13 million people currently suffering amid famine and food shortages and the Horn of Africa alone. Hundreds of thousands on the brink of starvation. That's disasters. And what about death? Approximately 25,000 children under the age of five die every day due to poverty. That's over 9 million children every year who die because of poverty. Over 150,000 people die every day in the world. That's over 60 million people who will die this year. John Piper brings it into stark contrast. He says, 100 people are dying each minute. If you could hear them all, You'd hear so many screams, you'd go insane. Only God can hear them all and not go insane. So God parcels out our awareness in small amounts, lest we go under. How can you live in a world like that as a loving person and rejoice in the Lord? So suffering is a global reality, number two. Number three, suffering is a personal reality. You see, there's a day for everyone when disaster strikes and a child is abducted, think April Jones. Or a parent or friend dies. Or cancer is diagnosed. You see, if you live long enough, you will suffer a moment like this. Maybe some in the room are suffering in this moment now. It can be unexpected, unfathomable, and seem unjust. Many of you are experiencing in this moment trials, pain, hardships, and you're looking for light in darkness. It might be bereavement. 
It might be sickness or loneliness, relational strife, depression, financial concerns. You fill in the gap in this moment now. Fill in the gap with your own trial, your own suffering. I've experienced the bittersweet hand of God in my own life. One instance would be would come to mind is when my son was born without his right hand. In 1993, um, I was playing professional football at the time. At the height of my career, we just got promoted with Newcastle United to the, to the Premier League. My wife, Amanda, was pregnant with her first child. I was captain. We traveled around an open-top bus in Newcastle City Centre, 200,000 Geordies screaming and worshipping. Um, I'd signed a new contract. Life couldn't be better, could it? I was young, world, everything ahead of me, wife about to give birth. Two weeks later, after a two-day labor, <coughs> our son was born with the cord wrapped round his neck, and as we looked to see if it was a boy or a girl, he, his arms came out to the side. We saw he's had half his arm missing. We only had one scan in those days. It was unexpected. It was unfathomable. And at the time, you could say it seemed unjust. But the doctor at the time said, this is the body that God has given your son, Jake. First Peter uh, 4, verse 12. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to test you, as if something strange were happening. Don't be surprised, he's saying. Trials come in all shapes and all sizes. A.W. Tozer says, It is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. So number four, sorry, number three, suffering is a personal reality. Number four, suffering is a missional reality for the Christian. Missionary Paul rejoices in suffering. In, in Colossians 1, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body. That is his church. I rejoice in my sufferings. How crazy is that? He's not saying that Christ dying and suffering on the cross was insufficient, but that his church, his body, his people must suffer as a way of proclaiming the one who dwells in them. The world's not going to take it as authentic if all we do is prosper. If we follow the lamb who was slain, then our participation in suffering displays the nature of the one to whose image we're being conformed. So suffering is the means by which God spreads the gospel through the history of the church. Look at it. It's the way, it's the means that he spreads the gospel, the presentation of the gospel to the world. God designs it this way. Get that. He designs it this way. It's not an afterthought. Suffering comes along. Oh, then God uses it and turns it. He designs it this way. He purposes suffering as the way the gospel is personally presented to the world. So Beacon Church is moving to a new building. It's not the new building that will make Beacon Church grow. It's Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's the people of God in this community taking that message into dark areas. And there will be suffering and there will be trial as you do that. It's the way this church will grow, through trial, through suffering, through the proclamation of, of the gospel faithfully each week. So reality number four, suffering is a missional reality. 
And number five, suffering is a gospel reality. And suffering can only be understood in light of the cross. Suffering is a gospel reality and can only be understood in light of the cross. You see, atheism is insufficient to answer the problem of suffering. Andrew Weisberg, a well-known atheist, says, None can account for the tremendous amount of suffering in the world in which an allegedly omnipotent, omniscient, and wholly good God reigns. The conclusion to which we are drawn, therefore, is that the existence of such a God is implausible. Well, that's encouraging. That explains it. Pointless suffering. New age is insufficient. New age says evil is a product of ignorance. In evangelical circles, something called open theism has crept in in many quarters. It's insufficient. Open theism says God doesn't know the future. So Clark Pinnock says decisions not yet made do not exist anywhere to be known, even by God. They are potential, yet to be realized, but not yet actual. God can predict a great deal of what he, we will choose to do, but not all of it, because some of it remains hidden in the mystery of human freedom. The God of the Bible displays an openness to the future that the traditional view of omniscience simply cannot accommodate. Yet biblical text upon biblical text says differently and points us to the gospel and to the cross as the lens through which to view and to understand all suffering. So Paul says in Romans 5, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. There's that rejoicing in suffering. We rejoice knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. Ha, huh, hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because why? God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Going on, he says, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So hope, hope is in the cross. And the gospel is the only thing that makes sense of suffering and provides the solution. So when Christians treasure the hope of Christ... In the gospel, more than what they lose through the suffering and affliction and trial, whatever that is, Christ is raised up then as most valuable and most worthy. And that's the big issue in the book of Job. The question is, was Job's faith in the sovereignty of God going to display God as the supreme treasure in Job's heart even when God takes all the gifts away? That's the big question, the overriding question of the book of Job. So five realities that drive this message. Suffering is a pastoral, global, personal, missional, and gospel issue, which leads us to one story to understand. Now, Job is the main book. It's not the last word, but it's the main book in the Bible which deals with Suffering and the sovereignty of God, and it, it can help us greatly. I call Job the dark chocolate of the Bible because it's an acquired taste, it's bittersweet, it's rich, you can't eat it all at once, but it's pure chocolate. It's pure chocolate. So let's turn to Job 1. Job 1, and, and I'll read through the text, and, and we'll just 
explain it as, as we go along. Reading from verse 1 of Job 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. So, so in verse 1, the author introduces us to the man Job and his character. Job is a good man. He's blameless and upright. He's not sinless. He fears God and he's turning away from evil. So what the author's trying to get across here is what he's about to suffer is not a result of sin in his life. Now, there are, in, in, in biblical wisdom, there is an action and consequence. Basically, you commit adultery, you can expect that suffering will happen out of that. You will suffer, your family will suffer. You uh, commit uh, arson, you'll probably go to prison. But, but, but this is not what it's talking about. This is not talking about direct suffering from sin. See, he's a, he's a good man. He's a, a God-fearing man. He's a sinner in a right relationship with God. He's turning away from evil. He's repenting and he's turning towards God in faith. He feared God and turned away from evil. Sin is not the cause of what Job is about to suffer. Verse 2 and 3. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 oxen and 500 female donkeys and very many servants so that this man was the greatest of all the people in the east. So these verses are just describing the way God has blessed Job. And it's true that God blesses his people and all gifts are from him. So we thank God for all the gifts that he gives us. And righteous Job had been mightily blessed by God. And he knew this. And so he was still rooted in his faith in God. Verses 4 and 5. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So these verses are describing a specific instance of Job's fear of God and his uprightness toward his children. See, Job was so jealous to guard the honour of God's name amongst his family, that he got up early in the morning to pray for them in secret, no big show, a great work of prayer being done for his children, lest they had cursed God in their hearts. And notice this, that he's offering sacrifices for them. Sacrifice and prayer, Job is already showing the need for a mediator between God and man for sins. So there's a hint here of, of Job's disposition towards God and the knowing of a need for God's mercy and a need of a mediator, a sacrifice between God and man for sins. Now look to, to verse 13 and onwards, when calamity comes. Verse 13 reads, Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were ploughing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, 
there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people. And they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Calamity strikes. Natural disasters in the form of lightning and the cyclone, this this great wind, and the evil of mankind in the form of the nations, the Chaldeans and the Sabaeans, and the good life is taken away. The good life is taken away in an instant. In one day, Job loses his wealth and his children. In one day, financial disaster and bereavement of loved ones. In one day, Job is stripped of the gifts that God had given him. Through no direct fault of Job, he'd been struck by a disaster that would rock anyone to the core. And this happened to the most upright and God-fearing man in the East. Now, what's happening here? What's going on here? Job's a good man. He loves the Lord. He's passionate that his name's hallowed in his own heart and his children. He sacrificially loves his family. He's got a good reputation with everyone around. What on earth is going on? And the truth is that you won't find out what's going on if you look for it on earth. If you look for answers on earth. The wisdom of man will get you only so far. Answers to life's deepest problems are found in heaven. So we need wisdom from above. So let's read verses 6 to 12. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he'll curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. The main issue here is will it become evident that Job values his possessions and his gifts, his family, more than God? Or will Job value God more than all these things? Will it become evident to the devil and to the world that Job values the gifts of God more than God himself? Is that the case here for you today? Do you value the gifts of God more than God himself? Your comforts, 
the good things in your life, your family, your children, your friends, your job, your money, your holidays. Do you value them more than God? If God takes these gifts away, even one, will you moan? If he gives you suffering in your life, will you still love him? That's the issue of the book. Is Satan right? Does Job just fear God because of the gifts? Will it become clear that Job values what he has more than God himself? Notice, God is sovereign. It's God who brings Job up to Satan. God is sovereign over Job's suffering. Have you considered my servant Job? Here he is. There. There's none like him on the earth. He's bringing him up to Satan. And Satan's only in God's presence by divine permission. God could have sent Satan packing. But God is setting Satan up. You see, God is not a bumbler. He is not someone who just fumble in the ball. Oh, oh, there's a bit of suffering. Oh, Oh, I've dropped that one. Oh, now I've got to react to that. He's not a chess player watching Satan's next move and thinking, oh, I've got to counteract that. The picture here is God in full control, sovereign over Job, sovereign over Satan. Notice too, God is proud of Job. He loves his people intimately. He knows Job's character intimately. He knows Job by name. And Job's Fear of God had called so much attention to the glory of God that God beamed over Job. He's his servant. He loves him. He's so pleased with him and confident in the faith of Job that he puts him forward as a candidate to suffer for the praise of his name. Notice also that Satan hates God's people and wants to destroy their faith in God through suffering. So Satan's response to God is that Job only fears God because of the gifts God's bestowed on him. Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him, all this stuff you've given him? You've protected him. But you stretch out your hand and you take away these possessions and he's going to curse you to your face. Satan hates the people of God. Know that. Be aware. You have an adversary. He's like a hungry lion seeking to devour Christians. And in that passage in Peter that speaks of that, he says, stand firm. How? In your faith. So Satan wants to devour faith in God through suffering. He says, you'll curse God. He wants you to curse God. He wants you to think of God just as a sugar daddy, to give you good things all the time. And when it's taken away, Satan wants you to think he's a meanie. He doesn't love you. And he wants you then by your weakened faith to show that you don't love God. He's saying Job's just showing superficial faith to you, God, because of all the stuff he's got. Remember these things when you suffer. God is in control and ordains, ordains your suffering. God loves you and knows you intimately in your suffering. He knows your name and he loves you. Number three, his design in suffering is to strengthen your faith. 
and increase your joy in him through suffering. And Satan's design in suffering is that you would lose your faith and curse God in suffering. So there's two designs always going on in suffering. Satan wants you to lose faith. God overriding wants you to strengthen faith. So God allows Satan to afflict Job. In verse 12, he says, Behold, all that he has, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. In other words, he's saying, You may test him, but this far you should go and no more. It's as if he's got him on a leash. And then somebody went out and killed the servants and the kids. Job loses his wealth and his children. And what does he do? Verse 20. Then Job arose and took his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. That is amazing. Job worships. Through the pain and through the tears, and note this, the Bible never ignores the pain of suffering. Pain is real in suffering. Pain hurts. Both God and Job know this. Job has faith in a sovereign and good God in his suffering. He knows that all things are from God. And it is God's right to do as he pleases, even though he can't understand the reasons why. And don't forget, Job hasn't seen this this heavenly courtroom scene that we are privy to when Satan came before God. He doesn't know all that's going on, but he trusts in him. Calamity of the worst kind has hit Job, and Job's answer to the question, who killed the kids and took the possessions, is ultimately God. And to endorse the point that Job is speaking the truth in this instance, that the Lord did it, the Lord gives, and the Lord takes away, to endorse this truth, that God is the designer of the suffering, the author writes in verse 22, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. In other words, what Job is saying is the truth. The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. God did it, and Job is worshipping. That's amazing. That is amazing in an age in the evangelical church of comfort. When, we, when we're so much about avoiding suffering and moving away from suffering that we wouldn't even consider saying, go towards the suffering, do the difficult thing. We're all about suffering avoidance. And it's a wonder then that the gospel isn't taken to hard-reached places into inner city areas, into the schemes, into the unreached peoples. Or across the workplace, when you've built that relationship with someone, and there's a risk of suffering if you go and tell them, because you can be rejected, you could lose that friendship. But Job has had suffering of the worst kind, and he is on his face, worshipping God, above the gifts that God has given him. So round one, and God has proven more valuable in the heart of his servant Job above even, even his children through the pain of losing them. Now, round two and chapter two runs pretty much the same way. 
not long after, God allows Satan to take Job's health and afflict him with these loathsome sores. In verse 7 and 8, it says, Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Later on in, uh, in the book of Job, these sores are, 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 are described as, uh, Job says, my flesh is clothed with worms and dirt, my skin hardens and then breaks out afresh. The, these sores get worms in them from top to bottom. He's scraping them out with pottery. Later we read of um, fever, bad breath, weak eyesight, constant pain day and night. What's going on? He passed the test. In chapter 1, he passed the test. And he was the best man to begin with. I mean, why not pick a bad guy to do it to? I mean, that's the way we think, right? He worshipped his kids. He worshipped God when his kids were killed. What's going on? And again, we've got to look to heaven for the answer. We've got to look to wisdom from above. And in chapter 2, and, and, and verse 3, we see again, you know, the, the Lord saying to Satan, have, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on the earth, blameless and upright, fears God, turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Notice that, that God is saying that he did it, he did it. He was the ultimate cause. And there was no reason, in other words, there's nothing in Job's life that gives cause to the fact that he was going to have suffering of this magnitude. There's nothing in Job's life to explain this suffering. See, when Job's fr friends come into the picture, they think that Job is suffering because he's been a bad person, because he's done some particular sin that's brought it on. But biblical wisdom looks for purpose in suffering. And God's purpose is always the joy of his people in the praise of his name above wealth and health and family. And it's merciful for us because when you treasure God by faith above everything he gives you, you've got ultimate contentment. Why? It doesn't mean that you don't care about the gifts. The pain is real. The loss is great, but it means you have a superior value so that when everything on earth is taken away, you still have God and God can never be taken away. That's the point. That's the purpose of God's design in suffering. And Satan says in chapter 2, verse 4, skin for skin. You made me not touch his life, but stretch out your hand and touch his health and, and he will curse you. See, we have things taken away. But what is it like when illness strikes you? I mean, I know what I'm like when I get a cold. I feel sorry for myself. When illness strikes, this is what Satan's saying. You know, okay, taking the possessions, taking the kids, but you t take his health. Take his health and he's going to curse you. And God says, behold, he's in your hand. Only spare his life. Again, divine sovereignty. This far you should go and no more. Satan's on a leash, so Satan goes out to afflict Job with a hideous disease. We read on in chapter 2 and verse 9. Even Job's wife gets to the point where she is no help 
to him. She says in, in, in verse 9, do you still hold, hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Those closest to you are affected by your suffering in some way. And yet, even they will not be able to comfort you ultimately as you need. Only God can do that. In verse 10, Job says, he says to her, you speak as one of the foolish women who, who would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So, so the truth, which is again revealed at the end of chapter 2, is that God is the ultimate cause, the ultimate cause of the disease, and Satan is the immediate agent. God ultimate, Satan immediate. And again, Job doesn't sin when he says that he has received evil from the Lord. God can ordain that sin and evil exist without sinning himself. So for the second time round, Job blesses God's name. He's lost his wealth, he's lost his children, and he's lost his health now. And he's the most righteous man around. Now that puts an end to the prosperity gospel. That puts an end to the prosperity gospel. Christianity is not about having the good life now. If you think that you're entitled to have it good now because you're a Christian, you miss the point. It's short-sighted. You need an eternal mindset. You need eyes lifted up to heaven. Through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom. Peter says, Again, don't be surprised. Like we, we get suffering, we're surprised. Whoa, what's happening? He's saying, don't be surprised. And if you have this mindset, you won't be surprised. You will be expecting it. You won't get up every morning, go out looking for suffering. But when it comes, you'll have this theology, this rock-solid theology of God and suffering, which will be like ballast in your boat when the storms of life hit. So you'll be able to rejoice in the times of plenty and in the lean times because you're not resting on the things in life. You're resting upon the eternal God who never changes. Profound calamities struck Job and his faith in the goodness and wisdom of a sovereign God endures as he worships the one who ultimately afflicts him. So he proves himself to be a true worshipper and not a hypocrite who treats God just as a fixer of problems, just to help him have a better life now. He worships God in sickness and in health. Think of marriage. And when Job blesses God's name, Satan flees. See, that's what happens in the heavens when God's people stand firm in trials and prove their faith. Heaven exalts. And Satan flees from the presence of the praise of God. You do not hear of Satan another time in the book of Job. Now, four theological truths to believe from this text. Four theological truths for us to believe by faith. Number one, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. We need a high view of God. He governs all that happens in heaven and on earth. He's sovereign over Satan's work and he is the ultimate cause of all the suffering. 
God admits it. He says, you incited me. You incited me against him to destroy him. Job says it. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And even Job's family and friends recognize it in chapter 42 at the end of the book when he says, they showed Job sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Which means that Satan is on a leash. He's the immediate cause and plays his part, but he has limited power. And God is using Satan unwittingly to accomplish his purposes. Evil tries to destroy us through suffering, and God permits evil to try it and then designs our suffering to be the means by which our faith is strengthened and God's name is upheld. This is the sovereignty of God. So Daniel says, he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what doest thou? When someone says to you in the midst of some tragedy, world tragedy that happens, oh, where is your God now? Quote that, our God is in the heavens, and he does according to his will, and none can stay his hand, and he is good. And he is holy. And that's good news. That's good news that a sovereign and wise and good God is in charge and not Satan or evil dictators or any government or even natural elements left to run amok while God stands back helpless. Our sovereign and holy God is ruling over all things, people, nations and events and he holds the destiny of the world in his hand and nothing can happen to you outside of his control, even suffering. Don't miss that. God is sovereign over all angels and demons, nations and nature, disease and death, comfort and calamity. And he's sovereign over your suffering, whatever that is here today. That means that he's with you and he's for you. His sovereignty guarantees that Satan has been conquered and his sovereignty guarantees that one day all suffering everywhere will cease. And if he's designed your suffering, and he is good and wise, it's going to be for your good and for his glory. So know this and believe this, theological truth, number one, God is sovereign. Theological truth number two, man is sinful and man has limited vision in suffering. Man is sinful and man has limited vision in suffering. So we need to have a humble view of man. A high view of God, humble view of man. Job was a repenting man. He lived by faith in the merciful God. He turned away from evil and towards God in faith. Your biggest problem and my biggest problem is not our suffering, it's our sin. Francis Schaeffer, theologian in the 60s, was once asked this question. What would you do if you met a modern man on a train and had just one hour to talk to him about the gospel? Schaefer replied, I would spend 45 to 50 minutes on the negative to really show him his dilemma, that he is morally dead. Then I'd take 10 to 15 minutes to preach the gospel. He continues, I believe that much of our evangelistic and personal work today is not clear, simply because we're too anxious to get to the answer without having a man realize the cause, the real cause of his sickness, which is true moral guilt in the presence of God. Our problem isn't that we've just done a few things wrong. 
Our problem is that we're morally dead, guilty before a holy God and deserving of eternal punishment and the wrath of God that is hell. What we need most is the mercy of a compassionate God. So man is sinful. Job knew this. That's why he was a repenting man. He was always in that disposition of looking to God for mercy. And the other part of this is is that you don't see the full picture in your trials. You might see one or two things going into your trial, but but God sees a hundred things going into your trial and flowing from it. And think of this, everyone in this room, and then think of this, everyone in Brixton and London and the world. We need a big view of God and his wisdom. He's got the whole mosaic of history, and he knows your individual sufferings and trials. Throughout history, everyone's weaving together in a mosaic for the glory of God and for the good of the church. You don't see the the full picture. Maybe your trial is a means by which another person is saved. So so think of it like this. Your, Your suffering isn't the whip of an angry judge. It's the knife of a loving surgeon. It's not the whip of an angry judge. It's the knife of a loving surgeon. And the eye of faith looks beyond the pain to the goodness of the one who ultimately causes the pain. So Tozer says again, with the goodness of God to desire our highest welfare, with the wisdom of God to plan it, and the power of God to achieve it, what do we lack? Theological truth, number two. Man is sinful and man has limited vision. Which leads to theological truth, number three. God purposes suffering in many ways and his purposes are manifold. They're good and they're all wise. He he desires purity of faith through affliction. Job's faith was proven and strengthened through the trial as he was left to live off God alone. In all trials, God aims to magnify his worth and Satan aims to destroy your joy in God. Satan aims to ruin faith. God aims to strengthen faith. And the mirror God shows this in is in the indestructible joy in the hearts of his saints, even though they lose everything on earth. Suffering is a means by which God designs the spread of his church writing to encourage a church under persecution. Listen to the words of James in the New Testament, lifting up Job as an example of faith persevering through suffering. He says, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose purpose of the Lord how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. See, James is speaking to a suffering church here. He's trying to show the church that suffering is God's means of showing himself to his people the way he did to Job. And as Job goes on, God reveals himself ultimately to Job through a whirlwind. So theological truth number three, God's purposes in suffering are manifold, which leads to the final truth, number four that the ultimate purpose in suffering, the ultimate reason that suffering exists is to exalt the glory of God's mercy and compassion in the sending of his son to suffer for sinners so that sinners would not suffer for eternity. 
Suffering exists to exalt the glory of God in the sending of his son to suffer for sinners so that sinners would not suffer for eternity. Job and our biggest problem is not Satan or our suffering or trial of this hour. It's the sin that's an offense against the holy God and leaves us under the just condemnation of his wrath. Job trusts in the sovereign, good and wise God for mercy and for righteousness. He shows the need, remember I said in chapter 1, he shows the need for a mediator between God and man with his prayers and sacrifices. And in chapter 19, in the midst of prolonged suffering, he cries out this, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth. See, Job's heart cry, his heart cry in the depths of suffering was vindication from God. He needed a Redeemer. Well, for Job, the Redeemer was future. And for us, he is past. God was to send his Son, Jesus Christ, the one truly innocent sufferer. How does Christ redeem his people? Well, it's the gospel. And I want to go to two texts to finish with. This is the gospel of Christ. The first is from Colossians 2, beginning in verse 13. Hear the gospel of Christ. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. You see, that means that there's a record of your sins and my sins and Job's sins, and it counts against us because God's holiness demands justice. So what does he do with that record? Reading on, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Where's the record? It's nailed to the hands and feet of Jesus. That's where the record of our debt and sin is. Every sin ever committed or will be committed by those who are his is nailed to the body of his son who became a curse on our behalf and took the punishment we deserve. What about Satan? Satan loves to taunt us with our guilt before God and he loves to come into the presence of the courtroom of God and says, send them to hell. They've sinned against you. Your justice demands it. What does he do with Satan? Verse 15, he says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. In other words, he, God takes away Satan's only weapon against us, unforgiven sin, that debt, and he holds it up in front of God, and and God takes it away. He takes it away because he nails it to the cross. It's nailed to the cross, to the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. And the second text is a famous text. You will all know it from Romans 8, beginning in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In other words, God's never our enemy. If he gave the most valuable being in the universe to die in your place as your substitute, how will all suffering he ordains for your life not be somehow designed for your good, to bring you to glory? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Satan, where's your charge of sins? Well, we've already seen it's nailed to the cross. It's God who justifies, who is to condemn. 
Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. You see, we worship a living Christ. He is risen. He's conquered Satan, sin and death. And he's at the right hand of God. He's praying for you now in the midst of your trial. So who shall separate us from the love of God? Now hear the list. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded to sheep to be slaughtered. Sheep to be slaughtered, that's happening now in the world somewhere now where people are being killed for their faith in India and Afghanistan and North Korea. 270 Christian martyrs per hour. Will any of this suffering separate us from the love of God? Verse 37, no, no. In all these things, in all these sufferings, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. What is a conqueror? It's some, someone who not only defeats the enemy, but makes his enemy serve him. Satan is a defeated enemy, and God uses him to serve our sanctification. Ha! How good is that? So your suffering is being used and designed by God for your own sanctification and for the glory of God, and Satan is defeated. For I am sure that neither life nor death, nor uh, angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen to that. Theological truth number four. The ultimate purpose that suffering exists is to exalt the glory of the Son of God who suffered for sinners so that sinners would not suffer for eternity. And there is the link between the gospel and suffering. So let us embrace these truths when we suffer. God is sovereign. Man is sinful and limited. God's purposes are manifold, good and wise. And suffering ultimately exists so that the Son of God could suffer for sinners, so that sinners would not suffer for eternity. You will suffer as a Christian. And when you know that Christ came down to die for something more important than your suffering here, to die in your place and take punishment for your sin, to bring you to God, then you have true, true theological steel in the moment of trial and suffering. And your response is not a stoic response of praise, the digging in to say, I'm just going to do it out of willpower. That's not Job's way. You let the tears flow and you let the grief be felt. And yet in a heartfelt pleasure in a merciful God who knows your suffering and whose son was afflicted for you, you join Job and you hear exaltation in heaven. As we say, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Let's pray. So, Father, I pray that you sanctify this word to our hearts. This is the truth of your word. These are deep truths and, and difficult truths for us to, to receive. And I pray that you, even now, do a, do a work in, in, in people's hearts in this room, that they would see you high and lifted up, sovereign over all things. We'd have a humble view of ourselves and knowledge that we are limited and we would never put you in the dock, even when trials come our way that you designed, and that we would know that you have manifold purposes in these trials, and that 
suffering ultimately exists, because your son could come then and suffer for sinners like us, that we would not suffer eternally and that we would look to him and have an eternal mindset and look to the suffering and risen Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.